millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. The Brooklyn Example, reviving our cities, Kay Heimowitz. In New York City, we are known to be one of the hardest places to build anything. We've only increased the available residential space by about 1.7%. The city controller did a study recently, and he found something like 6,000 rules and regulations geared towards small businesses. Well, you know, wouldn't you throw up your hands at a certain point? Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Can more old cities be saved? Just a few decades ago, most people would have said, no way. America's older cities had become deindustrialized, depopulated, crime was everywhere, and some cities were heading for bankruptcy. It seemed like everyone who could was heading for the suburbs. But then something happened. People started to move back into our cities, and urban economies started to revive, at least in some parts of the country. And the city that really led the way in this was New York, specifically Brooklyn, where I lived back when you couldn't find an artisanal vegan donut to save your life. How did you do it, Jim? (laughs) Our guest is Kay Heimowitz, and she's going to tell how Brooklyn and other cities have revived and revitalized, and how others can do the same. Kay is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute think tank and we're recording this show at their offices surprisingly in manhattan Kay's the author of four books her latest is the new brooklyn what it takes to bring a city back so welcome i'm delighted to be able to discuss it with the fix it guy <laughs> <laughs> so um i mentioned that i lived in in one of those neighborhoods actually many of those neighborhoods of brooklyn back in the 80s when it was a little scarier and and certainly less hipsterized, less gentrified than today. But you also had an experience like that. And you moved to Park Slope, which was one of the pioneers in what back then was a new word, gentrification. Right. Um, My husband and I bought a house in uh, 1982 in Park Slope. Now when I tell that to people, they get this look in their eye like, well, that I can only describe as that nearly fatal disease of real estate envy. And, and you bought the house in the early 80s after the decade when so many yes. people had left New York. Yes. I believe the population of New York was, was down a full 10% in that That's decade. That's right, between 1970 and 1980. You know, I don't know why we did it. <laughs> we were not the only ones moving back into an area like Park Slope. Um, and we were really at the forefront of, uh, of a large wave of people like us, educated, 
young families who were mo- who were beginning to move back to the city. And, and they were different from the working class oh, totally. uh, population yes. that was there. Yeah. And, and I can certainly remember this. My landlord was an Italian carpenter yes. who had worked on the docks, the once thriving and then by the 80s decrepit Brooklyn waterfront. Now, before you moved in, there had been a collapse of a lot of industries So the, in the 60s we began, and 70s? Yes. So many major brands actually started there. But Brooklyn and New York City in general reached its peak manufacturing in 1950. Uh, and after that, we started to see a bit of a decline. Uh, and that was certainly affecting Brooklyn, but, but all of New York City uh, to a great extent. Um, one of the moments that most hit Brooklynites in the gut was the 1966 when the uh, Brooklyn Navy Yard was decommissioned. That had been the biggest employer for Brooklynites for many, many years. And that's where the U.S. Navy built and repaired ships yes, and all kinds yes, of other technology. Yes, it, it was a pride and joy, really, of, of a lot of laborers. My in, grandfather in served there for a little no while. No kidding, but, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, when that closed down, the Brooklyn Dodgers, God bless them, had already left to become the Los Angeles Dodgers, and all of these factories were closing up. Uh, there was a great feeling of despair and hopelessness about the borough. And crime was also on the rise. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and a lot of people fled Brooklyn to the suburbs. Right. Uh, and certainly by the 70s, Brooklyn was known as a really dangerous place. It wasn't Fort Apache, the Bronx, but it was almost Fort Apache, Brooklyn. And um, Park Slope was not one of the worst neighborhoods by any means, but it was still tough. And there was a general sense of disorder that reminded you of the violence, even when it wasn't taking place right in front of you. Every morning we would leave the house in those years, and there would be just a litter of, of uh, car glass, because every night, there were cars being broken into. So we're talking about reviving cities. Yes. What happened? Well, I don't mean to take credit for this, but it was actually <laughs> people like us uh, that represented a real shift in the economy. Uh, the industrial economy was fading. Uh, by the way, there's a lot of echoes you should hear with the current election of, uh, of deindustrialization of it, its, its impact on communities. That was what was happening in Brooklyn. And there was no way that it was going to return in that old guise. But we were seeing, though we didn't quite understand it at the time, the rise of a different economy, of this more white-collar economy. But by the time I got there, and in the 80s, we were also seeing a growth of government, so that there were more and more government workers, and then we got the nonprofits, more lawyers, um, and, a, and a larger health sector as well. So all of that was happening. And that's before we get to this tech sector, which is a big part of the story. Yeah, now. so what I saw was a, uh, a kind of a second wave it's what you call the creative class. Your generation was dismissively known as, as yuppies. Yuppies, uh, my, absolutely. Mine. And then this new class was dismissively known as hipsters. And yes. these are the people who wanted those artisanal donuts <laughs> and, the, and the craft beers. And they wanted to start little businesses making their own kimchi or, you know, rough-hewn tables and all <laughs> and kinds of things. now you're making fun of them. I actually, I, I, I love those people. I mean, I, I make fun of their facial hair, Tom, sometimes. <laughs> but, um, A worthy target. That's right. Ironic <laughs> facial hair. But in fact, you call them the creative class and the people who are trying to escape the mainstream economy and 
carve out some kind of alternative approach to living that wasn't as consumerist wound up doing very well. That's right. It's quite an interesting story, actually, because Williamsburg was just an old industrial area, and it was really gone to seed. Williamsburg, right by the river, near yes, the Williamsburg North, Bridge. Yes, it's right across the river from the Lower East Side, where artists had been moving in for some decades, and they were being priced out. So the younger artists started to look around for other places where they could find big loft spaces. We've had a, a move of hipsters going into Brooklyn, but there's still many older Brooklyn neighborhoods, aren't there? There, there are, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to, well, I wanted to make fun of hipsters, but also to praise them. Uh, but I also wanted to show that Brooklyn is a lot more than the Condé Nast spreads would give you the impression being. Uh, for one thing, it is still very much an immigrant city, as it has always been. But about 37% of Brooklyn is foreign-born, and that doesn't include the children of the, of the newcomers. Uh, we also, of course, have a large black population, some of it quite poor. And uh, their stories are mixed. There are some that are not doing well, and I have a chapter on Brownsville, which is one of the most disturbing stories in New York City, really, still very much like the 70s, really hasn't changed much at all. Uh, so so all of the, the rise in income and, and, and this kind of new economy that we see in Williamsburg or downtown yes. Brooklyn, it hasn't spread out. It hasn't right. lifted all boats. No, certainly not in that community. For immigrants, the story is a little bit different, although it's, it's hard to generalize too much. There are immigrants who are definitely able to do what their predecessors from Ireland and Italy did, which was to raise children who were going to move into the middle class. I have a chapter on the Chinese of Sunset Park, how they're doing quite well. I mean, they, their lives when they get here are very, very difficult, uh, and uh, that's, it's a good thing to keep in mind. But they're very, very focused on their kids' education, and the kids are going on to Stuyvesant and often to Ivy League. Stuyvesant's one of the most yes. highly competitive high schools. Yes, I'm sorry. In, in I should be. I should be explaining <laughs> that. And Stuyvesant is now. Um, I've forgotten the exact number, but it's somewhere around 70 percent Asian. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And 
This is How Do We Fix It? We're speaking with Kay Heimowitz about reviving cities. It, it's hard to generalize, but let's take some of what we've heard about Brooklyn and move towards the future and some of the lessons that come from the revitalization of Brooklyn and how they might apply to other parts of the country. One thing to keep in mind is that uh, the, the cities that are doing well, and this is not just in the United States, cities like Amsterdam, uh, cities like London, they are doing well because they've been able to attract this educated class. This creative class. This creative and professional class who are creating the jobs, creating the new businesses, which in many cases lead to jobs for the immigrants we talked about So earlier. some of the people who make the artisanal pickles, they still need somebody to load the artisanal pickle truck, right? Yes, Yeah, it's but true. also immigrants create a lot of jobs, too, and, and, and a lot so of right. businesses. It yes. isn't just yes. uh, well-educated people coming in from other parts of the country. Very, very important point. Uh, they do. They tend to be more mom-and-pop businesses, but no question about it. Uh, so it's areas where you see a lot of immigrants and a lot of this new creative class where you're going to see the revival of businesses. Uh, now, those people are attracted to areas where they can be among themselves, where they can feed off each other's energy and innovations. Uh, and that has worked very well for Brooklyn, almost too well, uh, as anybody who's tried to buy a house or, an, or rent an apartment will be able to tell you. But a city maybe needs a little bit of a critical mass yes, I to, think to so. attract those people. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Um, one, of the, one of the keys to, uh, for, for any city now is getting your, your tech elite. It so happens that the tech business is no longer its own niche. Everybody, every industry needs tech people, people who are trained in tech. Uh, so cities ha- have the advantage of not just worrying about lowering a, a Google Google complex. Right. They're not, they don't need to do that. Well, let me ask you a difficult question. Because <laughs> many smaller cities, especially in the industrial Midwest or the formerly industrial Midwest, went for Donald Trump. Yes. They are symbols of despair. How are those cities going to turn themselves around. Right. So I think that some of them are going to have a great deal of trouble, and I'm not really sure what to tell you about that. I do not believe, from what I've read about the industrialization and the post-industrial economy, that the president is going to be able to bring those jobs back. For one thing, a lot of them were lost to, maybe most of them were lost to automation. Because in fact, America manufactures as much today as we did in the 50s. It just takes a lot less people to do it. That's right. So I think the uh, idea that we're going to go, we're going to be able to provide people from Youngstown, Ohio, for instance, with the jobs that they once had is 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 a method. But you do talk about some things that a city can do yes. to help encourage um, these new kinds of businesses, various types of incubators and, right. and things like that. Right. So in, you know, I, I look at how Brooklyn did it. Um, and this a lot of this was almost grassroots. Some of it was central planning, but a lot of it was grassroots where people saw an opportunity. So the... Um, the at the Brooklyn Law School, for instance, they realized that there was a tech community developing in downtown Brooklyn. So they started to train more of their young lawyers to go into that field, and they set up a clinic. 
which is an incubator also uh, for for new bu- new business people. Um, you see the same thing at Pratt Institute. That, so yes, any take advantage of your education institutions or even your hospitals and your hospitals. So tell us more about downtown Brooklyn. Okay, so downtown Brooklyn, when I when I moved here, uh, and and really up until about ten or fifteen years ago, was a kind of dreary uh, place with you know the courthouse was there, and there were a lot of stereotypical like Brooklyn motor vehicles. Lawyers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> motor vehicles. That's right, the welfare agency down there, and uh, and a little bit of. Um, downscale commerce going on, but really some beautiful old buildings because Brooklyn downtown was once a much more thriving area. Uh, And um, somewhere around 15 years ago, uh, the mayor and some of the um, powers that be in Brooklyn got together and started to think about rezoning uh, and trying to lure in more businesses. Uh, it was a slow process, and frankly, I don't think it would have been enough just for the powers that be without this new population that we've been talking about. So one thing that's kind of a hallmark of, of hipster economy is this love of old things, repurposing yes. old industrial yes. spaces. But that's also something that cities can encourage. Absolutely. Tell us about the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Yeah, well, that's a fascinating story. The Brooklyn Navy Yard, as we said earlier, was one of the primary uh, employers and one that went way, way, way back. The, it, the, the Brooklyn Navy Yard closed down a 19, big employer in yes. the 1960s? In 1966. And, and, and so that just became a vast amount of empty space exactly. right on the waterfront. And it was known as a place where the mafia might drop a few dead bodies and there were wild dogs. And it was not a place that you would ever imagine going to. This was partly a top-down decision to try to put some money in renovating. Had so to there be was some with. city investment in improving absolute, the infrastructure. Absolutely. Important city investment. And it's become spiffier and spiffier. One thing that made all of this possible was public transportation. Yes. Relatively speaking, New York has very good public transportation yes. compared to most American cities. Right. So uh, in writing this book, I think the one thing that just became so crystal clear to me that that a lot of people already knew, but I, I didn't, was just how important the subway system was to the growth of the city and to the growth, in particular, of Brooklyn. And uh, it allowed people to get from very far away into downtown within a half hour into the central business district. Another thing which has helped is the improving of policing and the real almost collapse in many places of violent crime. That's right. Uh, In 1991, we were still a very, very violent uh, crime-ridden city. But when uh, Mayor Giuliani came in, he wanted to take that on as his primary issue. There's a lot of debate about how much it was his policies and how much it was demographics and all that kind of thing. But I don't think there's any question, really, that the uh, attitudes changed about how crime would be fought and also that it was serious and that cops should not just sit in their cars. Car 54, where are you? (laughs) Um, And they should get out and be more proactive in their policing. And, And part of the community. One thing that remains stubbornly high is poverty. Yes. Um, Are there any steps that cities can take 
to reduce poverty? Well, I think there's some things we can do to try to do more uh, develop, development of ca- human capital. So um, our schools are not very good, uh, and uh, especially in the poorer neighborhoods. Uh, one thing that I think is absolutely essential is that we stop telling kids from day one that they should go to college. There are a lot of kids who should not go to college or maybe will not be, you know, are just not cut out for that kind of work, but who really, really can find decent jobs. There is a, there's still middle school, what people call middle skill jobs uh, that pay pretty well and that can offer a decent life. We've done a very bad job of connecting kids to those jobs, of educating families about those jobs. Uh, and of educating the kids to take those jobs. And we need to do a lot more of that. You know, Glenn Reynolds, who we interviewed for this show a while back, uh, talks often about how policy tends to be made by people who went to college and liked it. So (laughs) we tend to think that that's the solution for everybody to get in the middle class. It is really important for so many people. I mean, I have met so many people who are elevator repairmen. They make a lot more than journalists, most of the journalists I know Mm -hmm. (laughs) in New York. And, and, you know, these are good, steady jobs that can't get outsourced and that are really vital to keeping the city running. The biggest escalator out of poverty is creating more jobs. And one of the problems that is faced in many cities, and especially in New York, is how difficult it is to start a business. The certification process in many fields is very complex, and there are many hoops that small businesses, new entrepreneurs, have to go through. It's almost as if the city is saying, we don't really want you to start a business. Right. So this is a major reform that any city can can engage in. Uh, In New York City, we are known to be one of the hardest places to build anything. Anybody who uh, was keeping up with the Second Avenue subway saga knows that it's very difficult and horribly expensive to build in New York, worse than any, probably any place But also hard to start a small and, business, And very right? hard to start a small business. The city controller did a study recently, and he found something like 6,000 rules and regulations geared towards small businesses. Well, you know, wouldn't you throw up your hands at a certain point? One thing that you are also saying is that in many cases, public-private partnerships can help because government may be out of touch with the need of businesses. But on the other hand, businesses need better infrastructure to to start and to prosper and thrive. I think that's right. I think that's the story of the Navy Yard, which is becoming a real powerhouse in, in Brooklyn for job creation. I want to come back to a little on policy. We're talking about solutions. Uh, you talk about housing. Why isn't there more affordable housing? And, you know, we talk about all these benefits from all these young professionals and creative people moving in, but doesn't gentrification also drive people out? Oh, absolutely. We've done a very poor job of keeping up with the new arrivals. A lot of people would be surprised to hear that because you look around, and this is true in Brooklyn and Manhattan, and there are cranes everywhere in the sky. And you think, oh my God, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna be so many apartments. We've only increased the available residential space by about 1.7%. So, so that's we, one area where we need right. to fix. Yes, so now, definitely. A, a lot of people would say we need the government to build more affordable housing. But you also look to 
what we're doing with zoning that makes it hard to build housing. That's right. That's right. I mean, one of the things is that we have all these zoning regulations that make it difficult to do what's called infill housing. And there, there still are spaces like parking lots, let's say, uh, where you could build more housing. Uh, and also there are height restrictions, which are I think, dubious at times. Look, we need to be able to keep a sense of history. People like that sense of continuity. They like the aesthetic experience of being in an older place. And I certainly don't want to change or completely pave over places like Park Slope, not just because I live there, but because I think it's something that people come from all over to enjoy and look at uh, life as it used to be lived. But we do have to allow more flexibility with building up. Allowing more flexibility, a a key theme of what you've been telling us. Kay Heimowitz, author of The New Brooklyn, What It Takes to Bring a City Back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Jim, for me, three things emerged from this interview with Kay Heimowitz. Balance, respect, communication. Balance between public and private institutions, crucial for helping to develop cities. Respect for different types of people. Don't vilify that real estate broker. He or she may have a new way to use an abandoned building. It's happened many times in New York. And communication between different types of people. And and between, for instance hospitals and business so that you can develop new sectors of the economy and grow jobs. Yeah, we didn't get into tons of detail on that because of time, but these incubators, but also training programs. Hospitals can set up partnerships to train some of the workers that they need. Businesses can work with universities. You know, there's a lot of institutions in cities that can be harnessed to make new opportunities. And that can also, not all the the incubator spirit means a bunch of tech geniuses, you know, clustering together in an old warehouse. It can also be other types of more traditional businesses that are encouraged and training that's encouraged. So there's been a lot of that in the history of Brooklyn. Now, something that we may not agree with, but I think that there needs to be some initiatives for affordable housing. On the one hand, yes, make some of the zoning regulations more flexible within reason, but also make sure that there are some parts of these big new buildings that are built that are for low-income and moderate-income residents. But as she pointed out, the best is the enemy of the good. You know, you can make these affordable housing requirements so onerous. This stuff just you doesn't can. get built. You and remember when... But, but there has to be, again, a balance but between when these a, two when a developer things. makes a building for a bunch of rich jerks... That means they're not getting smaller apartments that then become more available for other people. I mean, markets do work even in overcrowded cities where everything's way too expensive. Even building more luxury housing does help keep the prices from rising as fast as other kinds of housing. It may not be enough, but don't assume that housing for rich people is taking housing away from poor people. It is still an improvement in the total housing stock. I agree, but, and the but is... 
diverse neighborhoods are really healthy. Yeah. I'm thinking of where I live in New York, where there is some subsidized lower middle class housing. There's a public housing project a couple of blocks away, and there are also house there's housing for rich people and then more middle class people. And it's it's a wonderful, vibrant thing. And sometimes it needs a nudge from the government to do that. Yeah, maybe so. But you have to show me that this is going to work everywhere. A lot of times that's translated in just restricting development and when you have cities that desperately need new housing. Otherwise, everybody suffers. Okay, I'm not sure I'm totally on board with you on that, but something I heard from Barry Lewis, the architectural historian, who said New York has always been reinventing itself every 10 years. There's been so much creative destruction, and that's very important for the future of any city. You can't constantly hang on to the past because it'll atrophy. And as she made this very important point, when you try to preserve the past, you often are preserving it primarily for the benefit of rich people. This is what's happened in San Francisco. We all love those classic San Francisco streets, but who lives in those houses? Billionaires. You know, those aren't available to middle class people anymore. So we we allowed our, our natural nostalgic feelings to completely change the economy of that city. Now, I don't want to see a bunch of just wall-to-wall high-rises either, but as you said, balance. There ought to be some middle path. And the middle path for us is to get out of here before we're staying on the air too long. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Our producer's Miranda Schaefer, our intern Julia Lewis, and the music is by Lou Stravinsky. And we are produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.